Hello, everyone. This is another D-Rays Bay podcast special. I'm Brett Rutherford, and while I will be on this episode, running point here is going to be Danny Russell and Darby Robinson as they have a conversation with Rays TV color analyst Brian Anderson. As you guys may have noticed on the podcast network, we've compiled what I would call a mini-series of episodes leading up to opening day 2021. We talked with Rays GM Eric Neander, Rays beat writer Adam Barry, Rays Radio Network host Neil Solons, and now today we're joined by Brian Anderson. As you might assume if you've listened to BA on the on the television broadcasts, uh, this conversation is going to revolve a lot around pitching. Obviously, he was a 12-year big league pitcher. He brings a lot of insight into this discussion and a lot of great knowledge on the 2021 Rays pitching staff and how they are going to construct this campaign. So really great conversation. If you haven't checked out the episodes with Eric Neander, Adam Barry, Neil Solons, I highly recommend checking those out very soon. I'll be I'll be hosting my first Raise Your Voice of the 2021 season. We talk with Alex Krutchik from fishstripes.com and Jamal Wilberg from dracebay.com. It'll be a great episode to get you ready to go for the opening series against the Miami Marlins. And Guys, this is going to be a fun year. I, I can't wait to get back to our regularly scheduled programming here on the D-Rays Bay Podcast Network. But for now, without further ado, here is our conversation with Brian Anderson. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Did you think a season was going to be happening on time? You know what? I actually was was pretty optimistic. I, I think that when baseball was able to get things going last year, I think it was towards the end of July, um, was able to get through that season. Of course, there were a couple of hiccups early on, but I thought that the guys were, I mean, they, true professionals and, and able to, you know, stay disciplined, um, their lifestyle to be able to get through that season. And then once you, you got into, you know, football, and of course there were a couple of hiccups there too in the NFL, but they were able to power through their season. You saw basketball get started. Um, you know, hockey get going. I thought by the time we wrapped around, I was going to actually be surprised if things didn't go off uh, smooth. It, it, it's a group of guys that have already kind of been through this because of a season ago. And so, you know, coming in, I really never gave it much thought that we would not get started on time. Like I said, I would have gone the other way. I would have been shocked if all of a sudden the season was delayed. And certainly I, I don't think anybody's out of the woods quite yet. So hopefully that's not the case, but I think spring training gives you a you know, a pretty good look that things, you know, a couple of blips here or there with some individuals, but as far as the teams uh, go, things have been as smooth as you could have hoped for. Yeah. It's been remarkable how many press releases will say seven people tested positive instead of seven people per team, like it might've been previously. And now we're hearing even some of the race players come forward and say, Oh yeah, I got my vaccine a week ago. Yeah. It's surprising how fast everything is coming together at just the right time. It, it really is. And, and now, uh, you know, you're starting to see that Major League Baseball has said, hey, look, you get a certain percentage of guys um, that have been vaccinated and we can start to loosen uh, the protocols for teams and family members may be able to travel. And it's starting to feel like maybe it's going to at some point during the season become a a normal, a normal season that we've been used to, you know, all of our lives that we've uh, that we've loved baseball and watched baseball. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it, it is interesting how, you know, the age keeps lowering in each state. And now you're talking about some players. I saw Colin McHugh came out the other day and encouraging, uh, you know, his teammates and, and other people in general to get the vaccine. And, and uh, that's, that's a great thing. 
Are you going to be allowed to travel? I don't think so. I, I, you know, I really don't think that, that at least initially, I know that we're not traveling. Um, and I don't see it on the horizon as of yet. Uh, someone like Trisha Whitaker, sideline reporter, where her job, it's more important for her to be, you know, on site and to be able to talk to the players and get to have interviews with them. I think you, you may see her on the road maybe a little bit sooner than, than we are. But I think initially um, that's, you know, that's just not going to be the case that we are not going to, to get out there on the road. And you wonder at the end of the day, I think across the spectrum of business, um, you, you've been able to see all of these, you know, companies make adjustments that, you know, going forward because of what the pandemic did all of a sudden now, maybe not everybody's going to go to the office to work right. and maybe maybe it comes down to we don't travel all the time anymore. Because when you think about it, the TV crew, when we go out on the road, um, you know, we're on the team plane and we travel a minimum of seven people. You know, you, you've got Dwayne and I and Trisha. So you've got the, the talent going and then you've got producer, director, graphics and replay. That's seven. And so, you know, all of a sudden, being able to get through the season that like we did last year and be able to, you know, I think that for the most part, if we didn't tell people that we weren't on site, I don't think a lot of people would have known the difference. We could have been able to tell the difference. And if, if at the end of the day, the executives say, look, you can't tell the difference in the broadcasts and mm -hmm. we don't have to travel seven people. Maybe that's going to be the way it goes in the future. We'll have to wait and see. My sympathy goes out to Dwayne as well, because he, calls live really i don't think he's really accustomed to calling from a screen is that right right now 100 100 Dwayne, Dwayne, uh, i think it was a much bigger adjustment for for Dwayne because of that reason that you just talked about daniel i mean he he really likes to get the feel of the game and you know that, that's why sometimes you'll hear he's calling pitches at such a, such a tough angle mm -hmm. you know that that it's hard to tell the location all the time but that's the way that he's always done it. So, I mean, he made the adjustment and made it seamless, but I know at the end of the day that that, that game happening right down in front of both of us really is, uh, is, is the way to call it. And for you going, you know, having a season to kind of adjust to that, the calling the road games through monitors, how do you feel going into this year, you know, feeling pretty comfortable about, about that idea of kind of rolling with this? You mentioned it's sort of like, you know, tell for everybody else. It's, we're kind of getting used to something weird and getting used to it. How do you feel kind of going into next year as this uh, kind of new challenge that you've had a nice uh, season under your belt with? You, you know what? I, I'm perfectly comfortable. If that's the, if they came out and said, you guys are going to never travel again. Okay. You know, not ideal, but guess what? We'll make it work. And, and that's, that's kind of the mindset. I, I think that, you know, being able to call the games from Tropicana field when the team is there, that's great. Um, when the team went on the road, there I don't even want to call it a challenge, but it was something that you had to get used to it. And that was this, when the teams at home, um, our producer, director, Kevin Patterson, uh, Gary Nicholas, they had control of most of the cameras, all but one of the cameras. So we've gotten to the point that when a play happens and I know the angle that I want to take to be able to analyze it, I will start to go down that road. And the guys in the truck know exactly what replays to show to support what I'm talking about. And so I don't have to ask them for a certain shot. I don't have to do any of that. I just need to go into my analysis and they know where to go with the cameras. It supports what I'm saying and it's very seamless. 
when the team went on the road, and I learned this on the first trip, the first couple of innings, we only control one camera, and it may not be the camera that's going to help me out in my analysis. So I found myself a couple of times, a play would happen, boom, I immediately know what I want to go, where I want to go with, uh, with the analysis, and I would start to go down that road. It was the other team's producer, director, throwing up the replays, and they may not be going in the same direction that I am. So all of a sudden, I'm going down a road. Here comes the support replay. Um, that's that that really doesn't support what I'm saying. So people at home are going, "Well, this uh, what he's saying one thing, they're showing another." Wait, this is this works both ways now because now, say the Red Sox broadcast, Jerry Remy has to call off of your analysis angles, right? Yeah, and so what you learned and what I learned, you know, very quickly was that when a play happened, okay, I have in my mind what I think the angle to take for the best analysis is, but you have to wait a beat until that first replay comes up. Now, all of a sudden, the replay comes up. Now, maybe it's perfectly in line with what I'm going to talk about because it's that obvious, so you just go down that road. If it's not, you quickly say, how can I tie in my angle to that replay? And so a lot of times you could kind of mesh the two and make it work. And then there were other times that you were like, that's a complete, I mean, they're showing nothing of what I'm talking about. I got to completely switch gears and go down a road that, that I didn't really want to go down. Maybe we can revisit it. If it's significant enough, we can revisit it a little bit later. But that was, and again, I hesitate to even call it a challenge because it almost in a way made it more fun. Like mm -hmm. what were they going to show and how can I quickly, because that's the one thing about that I've learned about being in the booth is you sit at home with your buddies and you watch a game and you get an idea about something to say and you're, you say it, you're like, man, that's so true. The problem is by the time you said it, it's way past the point of it being relevant to the broadcast. So there's a lot of timing involved. And so it was quickly, how can I tie in my angle to their replay and, and get it done in a, in a timely manner? So it made it at sometimes it made it more fun because you just didn't know what you were going to get and how am I going to handle it? kind of spice things up from time to time. What are you most excited about seeing once the regular season kicks off, you get the, the non-spring training angles, maybe get to see some new pitches. Is there anything you're really excited to see that the players have been working on? Um, really, I, I, I'm excited to see how creative the Rays get with pitching staff. Yeah. I think it goes without saying um, this team still has very high expectations, you know, unfinished business. They are defending an uh, American league pennant and an AL East title. Uh, and you've lost your number one and number two starter. I mean, you're Charlie Morton, Blake Snell, goodbye. And so for most teams, I think that would cripple them, just cripple them. However, that's not the case here with the race. You go out and you sign a Rich Hill and Michael Walker, you bring back Chris Archer. And, and while you're not going to lean on them quite like the Rays would lean on to Charlie Morton and a, and a Blake Snell, you're going to get creative with them. You're not going to ask them to do too much. And you're going to support that with the Colin McHughes and the Josh Flemings and, you know, guys that can give you two, three, four innings, whatever is asked of them uh, on that given night. So the creativity part is what I'm anxious to see because the one thing we know about the Rays is they have an uncanny knack. Doesn't matter who the pitcher is, they find a way to maximize that guy's ability. And they don't bring him in unless they think that guy can help them. That like there is an attribute that they're going to be able 
to maximize the, the, you know, the efficiency of it and, and the, you know, give the pitcher the highest ceiling that, that, that they may um, ever experience in this game. And so you, you don't uh, question if the Rays are going to put out a really good pitching staff, you know, that they will this year, however, I'm going to be interested to see how they piece it together because they're going to have to get creative. And I think we're already seeing that when they're talking about game three, okay, glass now mm-hmm. Yarbrough, we're going to come out of the gate with two traditional starters. Game three, we're going to do a piggyback. We're going to do a, a double A in June move where we're going to start Rich Hill and bring in Chris Archer after that and then figure out the last couple of innings when that's all said and done. At least that's that's kind of what we're hearing. So um, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, that hasn't been a secret. They've been pitching on the same day for, what, the last three yeah. outings? <laughs> so yeah, there, it there wasn't very some- subtle. No. And you know what? I think we saw that the other day, too. In fact, I, I, I think that I mentioned it during the broadcast. And if I didn't, I probably should have. But when Josh Fleming came in the game, you know, you, Josh Fleming has always been a bulk guy. So he's coming in, in the second or third inning. Well, his last outing that we uh, telecast, he came in, in the fifth. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, OK, there's another. If we are going to piggyback down the road when Fleming you know, comes to the big leagues, because, you know, he's going to end up there at some point then then we're going to try to get him used to maybe not coming in right away earlier in the game. You're going to have to sit and wait till the fourth, fifth in- inning before you come in. So I thought that was kind of telling, too, and and trying to get the staff ready for for the uh, for the season. I was listening to Kyle Snyder talk about the pitching staff with Neil Solons over the weekend, and he described it as having 10 arms who can throw 70 pitches. Where it's the five guys in the rotation, then Fleming, Richards and Mazza, the three who got sent down at least to start the year due to the couple off days and, you know, hopefully everyone's rested. But then also I think he called out Enns and Ellis and said, I've got these 10 guys who can all throw 70 pitches, add in McHugh who maybe throws a little bit less than that. And I'm curious to see if this becomes another uh, evolution of the Rays way from a national media perspective in the same way the opener kind of became something named and something tangible. Uh, I think it would be interesting if everyone catches on. There is no question, you know, the pandemic in a lot of ways forced hands. It forced people to do things differently, to think outside the box, to try to make their business work when no one can come to their business. I mean, there's just so many challenges faced by people across the spectrum of business. Race, it's the same thing. And with Charlie Morton and Blake Snell leaving, it has allowed them this opportunity to build a pitching staff of pitchers and and that's it pitchers a bunch of guys that they can mix and match that can give you three four five innings max and and just go out there and see what happens and then have a stable of guys in triple a or alternate site whatever it may be that are waiting in the wings i think that this i i think you're absolutely right where where the opener was new and and the rays kind of put that on the map this idea of pitchers, a staff of just pitchers, I think that is going to be, um, it's going to be the next, the, the next move. I don't know how many teams will follow suit, but certainly the Rays are going to see where it takes them this year. Well, and in your position, you have an interesting spot to be able to, you know, you, you teach the audience. You can kind of explain what the what and the why behind things that the Rays do. And the, and the Rays are always giving you plenty of, of things to <laughs> hey, listen they're, they're to raised understand. a lot of times are teaching me i'm like i've never <laughs> seen it done like this before i don't know I'm, I'm i'm learning like everybody else 
Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you and Dwayne do a really good job of kind of blending a bit of the, you know, kind of old school to, with the new school and trying to crack into the code of what, what the heck the Rays do each year. Can you just, you know, a little, talk a little bit about that blend of, of trying to bring in an excitement for something new and a curiosity towards, you know, new ways of looking at this, you know, really old game and like new ways of accomplishing the same thing of getting three outs an inning, getting 27 outs a game. You know, how, how, how do you do that? You know, how do you kind of take on that challenge of reinventing the wheel basically each year? You know, it's a great question because I, I will tell you, um, you know, when the, the race started to play the, the reindeer games with the, the pitching staff and how they were going to do things, uh, you know, playing in the old school era where a starting pitcher, you know, anymore, guys are celebrated. They go five, five and a third innings and they come off the field and, you know, practice the whole team's there. Boom, boom, boom. I remember in my one World Series start and the Yankees at that time, they just would wear you down, fouling pitches off, long at bats, whatever. And so I went five and a third. I threw 100, close to 110 pitches. I mean, again, these long innings at long at bats. And I went five and a third innings, 107, 108 pitches. And when I came off the field, I lost my mind. Now, granted, when I came off the field, it was one to one. It wasn't like I I had had a bad outing. It's a one to one game in the sixth inning. Uh, you know, game three World Series against the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. And I was livid. I, I mean, I lost my mind in the dugout. Thankfully, I don't think it ever made the air because if it did, it was it was a meltdown for because I was so upset with myself that I only went five and a third. I'm like five and a third. I mean, that, that, well, I might as well not even shown up tonight, put my bullpen, hang him out to dry like that. The game's completely changed. Now five and a third is celebrated. That, that's a big deal. And so at initially when this stuff started to happen and you went the way of the opener and shorter outings and a big deal was made of these short outings, I couldn't stand it. I'm like this, no, 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 no. Over time, I've grown to not only accept it, but, but to respect it. Because I think that, you know, what they ask of these pitchers now, there aren't a lot of Josh Flemings out there who just kind of pitch early in the count contact uh, and work very efficiently. A lot of it are the big strikeout numbers. What is it throughout the league? The last what 13 years, the strikeout totals have continued to rise every single year. And so Mm -hmm. it's all about now missing bats and it's about maximizing spin and maximizing spin, not only in the fastball, but on the breaking balls and max effort every pitch. Well, when you're out there going max effort, every pitch, you're probably not going to pitch deep into the game. Not only that, you're probably not going to be allowed to pitch deep in the game because they're going to cut you off at 100 pitches because you're not holding anything back. There is no pacing anymore with starting pitchers. It's max effort every pitch until your outing comes to an end. So you understand why five innings now, five and a third, five and two thirds is is sometimes your your ceiling. You've just expended too much energy in getting to that point. So all that to say, long way of saying, I have kind of grown to... While I don't always love it, um, you respect it, you accept it, and you try to, to take the team's point of view on why they're doing things and, you know, uh, and let the people at home know that. Say, hey, look, there's a method to the madness. Does, you don't always have to agree with it. Uh, I don't always agree with it, but this is what they're thinking. They're consistent in how they do it. It's led them to good results. So at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's hard to, to argue with.
and uh, and it's like anything else. It's family. So we can get upset with our family, but don't let anybody else talk bad about what the Rays are doing because then you get everybody all riled up. In doing your research, have you either tried to sneak into the pitching lab <laughs> to see what no. they're up to? I know no. the pandemic's on. Yes. No, I, I have not. You know, listen, there there are um, I've had some really good conversations with, you know, not only Kevin Cash and, you know, he obviously is not completely in charge of, of the pitching, but we have a good relationship with our coaching staff. Kevin's been great. Um, I played with Kyle. You know, Kyle and I were, were pitched with each other, you know, pitched together with the Royals. And so I've known Kyle from back in the playing days, and I've had a lot of really good conversations with him pitching. Um, to his credit, he doesn't give up too much. You know that he tells you enough. Uh, he's not going to go really deep into it. You know, a couple of times we got into deep conversations. But I, listen, I would love, I would love to find the code to be able to sneak into that room because I'm telling you something right now. Um, there's something else and on, on how they're able to game plan um, on how they can bring a pitcher in where you're like, I don't, who is this guy? And then before long, you're like, Oh, this guy does this and he does it really well. And he gets a lot of big outs for the race. So what they are seeing with their research, you know, not only do they know their own players well, but they know pitchers on other teams very well. And they know that, you know, maybe that team's not using them quite as efficiently as they could. And so to be privy to that information and to see all of the, um, the assets that Kyle Snyder can get his hands on would be fascinating. And, and I think at that point, there's probably so much of it. Now you've got to be able to d- discern, you know, how much can I use? Um, mm-hmm. what, what, you know, what's effective, what, you know, what, um, is going to get, be most efficient for, for my job. And then not only that, now I've put together these dossiers. Now I've got to know each individual picture, you know, some guys, more information is not always better. So you've got to know your guys, know what they can handle and, and know what's going to help them before you dish it out to them. So, you know, from, from top to bottom, um, it would be it just fascinating to, to see that information coming downhill and how it gets out to the guys, because we do we do know that when it gets out to them, they put it to good use and they do a lot of good things. It seems like we're going to see it all play out in real time with Glass now as he brings out this new pitch. Uh, the postseason, he started throwing, uh, you know, the this harder kind of breaking ball. It was something a little different was going on. But over the offseason, it's very clear they figured out and dialed in this hard slider that is definitely thrown like a slider, but does something more like a cutter. And I know that's a traditional breaking ball. It's not, I mean, are we, I don't know if we're going to, Brett, am I allowed to say slutter? Yeah, you can say slutter. I could say slutter. (laughs) All right. Uh, We're not going to get dinged uh, by Apple. Um, Right. So he has that going for him, but it seems clear that they developed it with data to say you need something that does something different. And, you know, when you put pressure on the ball in this direction and you come up with the spin efficiencies, you can do something that is unique compared to the other stuff that he has. Yeah. And, and you know, you remember you watch him pitch. He, he can get that little bit of cutting action on his four seamer anyway. So he's yeah. already got the propensity to be able to get a little bit on the side of the ball. Now it's just a matter of how much too much. And I think we saw that earlier in camp where the velocity on that, uh, you know, the, the slider was not quite where he wanted it. 
And so he was able to tweak the grip a little bit and then get it more into that 88 to 92 mile an hour range. Uh, and I think that that's great because if Tyler Glass now is going to take the next step, being a dominant one or two starter, um, horse of a staff with two pitches, that's tough. I mean, Randy Johnson was able to make it work for, you know, quite a long period of time. He's also 6'10", but through from angles. You know, the angle of that fastball, the velocity and the slider, it was just, but even towards the end of his career, he had to develop a third pitch. And so that's the ideal for uh, a starting pitcher is to have three different price points, if you will, three different velocity points. And so if you can go boom, boom, and boom, and give them more to think about than just the two that play off of each other very well, but now you add that third element and it's like, uh uh-oh, now hitters that have to go up there with against Tyler Glass, now they can't eliminate one pitch. And now you've got to look out for that slider and he can still play the up-down game with you with the fastball and the curveball. That just will be one of those, um, this could be one of those moments that you look back on and say, that's when Tyler Glass now took the next step. And I can remember when that happened with, uh, with CC Sabathia uh, with the Indians, when I was pitching with him, dominant with the hard fastball and the slider, developed the change up. Oh, guess what? Now he becomes a Cy Young award winner. And so I think that's what you're hoping here with uh, Tyler Glass. Now the adding of that third pitch takes him to that elite uh, top starting pitcher in the game type level. So to, to change gears from maybe the almost polar opposite, both opposite hand, but also pitch type and style I'd love to hear your thoughts on Ryan Yarbrough, who's going to get the ball in game two. He's probably going to be more of your traditional starter with, with glass. Now he's been a guy that has gone, he's done everything for the Rays since he's come up pitching every possible role and has succeeded by not having a 99, 100 mile an hour fastball and a 90 mile an hour slider and, and all of that stuff. So you can talk a little bit about how Yarbrough using his own unique bag of tricks has been able to become such a reliable and top tier pitcher in, in major league baseball. Uh, he's a throwback. I, I, I mean, how often do these lineups see a pitcher like Ryan Yarbrough? They don't, they, they have no hand. They are used to trying to be overwhelmed with stuff, whether it's the opposing starter or it's the bullpen when they come in and everybody, like you said, is throwing, you know, 96 to hundred with spin and breaking balls. They're used to be, being overwhelmed they don't face too many pitchers that don't have the overpowering stuff but they come in and they know how to pitch they know how to set a hitter up cut her in change up away you know Fleming's very similar a little bit more velocity than than Ryan Yarbrough but Ryan Yarbrough's got a a tremendous top in the game type cutter that he can drop you know cut in sink away change up away, backdoor the cutter. He pitches. He pitches, and he pitches at a reduced velocity, but he's got very good command, and that type of pitcher you just don't see anymore. So when these lineups go out there to face it, they're like, what, what, what is this guy doing? Cutter in on my wrist. You know, then he's changing up away, and I'm reaching for stuff. He just gets them off balance. He does a great job of missing the barrel of the bat. He gets weak contact, and it's a guy that can give you a lot of innings because he isn't max effort on, on every pitch and he can be efficient with quick things. So I, I often think sometimes you go back and you look, you know, what would Greg Maddox do with some of these lineups with his movement and pitching acumen? My goodness, this guy might have one, two, three, no hitters a year. 
you know, just because the lineups aren't built to deal with those types of pitchers because those types of pitchers don't really exist anymore. There's only a handful of them around the game. Now, now I'm going, okay, Ryan Yarbrough is the next Greg Maddox. He's, <laughs> hey, right, listen, Ryan Yarbrough, i tell you. He stunned me with the really, comparison. Well, no, no, I, it wasn't the comparison. It I know, just, I know, I know. It you was just got just, my wheels. Yeah, what, what would he do against yeah. these lineups that are all, you know. When, this is why I like I remember, listening to you, man. You get me thinking. Well, here's the thing. I, I, I mean, when I pitched. Um, over the course of my career, even with some of the slugging lineups that you would face, most hitters had a two-strike approach. They, they didn't want to strike out. There were a few guys that, yeah, strike out and strike out. But a lot of really good hitters with good power with two strikes, they'd cut down just a little bit. And, and you know what I mean? And, and if, boy, if you didn't have that big power, you better cut down a little bit with two strikes or you'd be out of a job. And nowadays, we see guys taking 0-2 cuts like it's 3-1. I mean, there is no change in approach. And if that's how a lineup is going to go out there and present itself, a guy like Greg Maddox, if you were to just to drop him in, it wouldn't be fair. And it really would not be fair. And you'd have to, you know, they'd have to make the adjustment. They always do. Um, but the game's changed. The, the game has changed. And, and you know, that's, it, it's fun to think era to era, but it's, it's not a real good comparison, you know, outside of, you know, you think about, well, Babe Ruth and those guys back in the day, they couldn't play now. Well, they were the best players in their day. And if they had the resources that these players have today to be able to train and get better and the pitch tracks and, and tracking of the ball and all the nutrition and working out, yeah, they, they'd be able to play just fine. I mean, guys, guys that can play the big leagues can play in just about any era if, if having to adapt to that time. Well, speaking of guys who are pitching who you might not expect to be pitching, Rich Hill's rolling out there at age 41. Is, should I be wowed by this or is yes. this one? Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I, I think so because look at the injuries that he has gone through and you know, it just continues to kind of reinvent himself. He's living off that curveball now, which is just – Filth. I mean, the way that he can spin that thing and, and play the fastball off of it, um, just a, a, a competitor who just doesn't just wants to pitch until his arm falls off. I mean, he's he's a a throwback in that sense. And again, when you start hearing guys now when they turn 30, it's like, well, mm -hmm. do we really want to lock him up long term? I mean, he's 31. <laughs> They're going to be 32 next season. You know, that, you, you retired at uh, 33. I was, um, let's see, that my last game, 90, I was 33. Yes, 30. Well, and that was only because the stupid elbow blew in 05 because I tried to come back in 06 with the Rangers and blew it out again because I tried to come back too soon. And then I took 2007 off. Um, and then came down with the Rays at 36 at that point to try uh, to try one last go around and, and the, it would not cooperate. The elbow just kept poof, poof, poof. So uh, that's what led me up there. But yes, I, I, I'm thoroughly impressed because, again, the, the game has gotten younger. The game has gotten younger. Guys now in their early to mid 30s, those are just throwback ancient dinosaurs. And so to get a guy in his 40s and still out there pitching at a high level against, uh, you know, against big league hitters, I'm I'm thoroughly impressed. I can't wait to see what he does up close and personal. Well, don't wait, wait, wait. You can't sell yourself short. You were in the majors at 20, weren't you? 20. I feel like you were, you were pitching off. as a pretty young man. 21. 
21. Mm. Yeah. I got drafted 93. Uh, I turned 21 in April of 93 and I got called up in September of that year, which was strange because it was, I, I get called up and my, you know, my first outing, I go out there and I'm facing the defending champion Toronto Blue Jays at mm. Sky Dome, 50 plus thousand people. First hitter I'm going to face is Paul Molitor. And I can remember thinking not so much at that point because I had bigger fish to fry, but thinking after that, you know, it was just a couple of months ago, I was pitching against Eastern Illinois. And now I'm going up against the Toronto Blue Jays and Paul Molitor. So that was a shock to the system uh, for sure. Well, and, and so this year, the Rays do have kind of a bigger mix of veteran, you know, pitchers in that rotation or rotation with heavy question marks because or yeah. quotation marks. Um, but you have a guy, you have some really interesting experience there. Chris Archer's back. Michael Walker has, you know, quite a bit of postseason experience. Rich Hill has been around the block a time or two. Uh, Colin McHugh has is pitched in World Series games. So, how does that like kind of help? The, the whole team went through the postseason, the World Series. So they have that now that experience for the younger guys. But now to add these guys that have done it in multiple places or in other places coming in. How how does that sort of change the dynamic of like a clubhouse and and yeah? If I could piggyback on that question too, Darby, because you you frequently see a veteran signing as oh you know we're trying to improve the culture or we need these guys who have the postseason experience to help the young guys. They were all just in the World Series. These guys have the experience, mm-hmm. and the Rays are being super experimental. But generally speaking, for the game, it's an experimental approach to pitching. Why would you add veterans? Why wouldn't you just roll with the kids? You know what? Because I I think the challenge of of replacing um, and again we talked about this earlier. You're not going to mm-hmm. outright replace them, but Charlie Morton, Blake Snell, two huge losses. And I think if you just ran with the kids, that would be a huge risk. Could they do it? Sure, but that would be a huge risk over the long haul. You know, when you start talking about 162 game schedule, so. You bring in those guys, you know, accomplished guys. You know, Chris Archer knows the the, the system here and what the Rays are all about. Michael Walker, Rich Hill. These guys want to win a championship, get back to the postseason. Obviously, feel like they've got a good chance to do that with the Rays. And they're not going to be asked to do too much. They're not going to be asked to carry the staff. You know, they're they, you know, Rich Hill's going to get the game three start, and he may go three innings, and he's okay with that. He knows it's going to be a long season and a lot of people are going to have to get involved. So I like bringing in the veterans to fill those type of roles when you have the kids that can jump into that, that we, you know, the, all, you know, the, the Flemings and the McClanahan at some point and, and McHugh and you know, all these different guys that can come in and contribute in the same way that the Rich Hills and Michael Watkins and Chris Archers are going to. And I think the Rays also realize. Kyle Snyder, when we interviewed him during one of our games, said, if you look at it from last season to this season, we have to cover a thousand more innings or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know that the way that these organizations are very hesitant for pitchers to make big jumps. Well, everybody last year didn't throw that many innings. So you can't, you know, you can't ask Tyler Glass now who threw what, 57, 58 innings to go a buck 80 or 200. That's not going to happen. So you need a bunch of guys that can throw 100 innings, 110, 85, and, and piece it together that way. And I, I think that you needed some, some other bodies and veteran bodies like they brought in. Uh, they're great. And, and the Rays, you know, they've got a culture in place now 
um, these are the type of guys that can come in and they don't, they don't change the culture. They don't uh, bring a culture. They enhance the culture. And they're just another, uh, it's another asset for the young guys to bounce things off of. Because as you mentioned, those three have seen and done it all. Walker seems like a very targeted signing. Throughout the offseason, he, he was approached super early on. Kyle Snyder came at him with this giant binder of ideas of how they're going to approach the coming year. Uh, Neander called him a character signing. Uh, they really honed in on him early on. And I'm curious about if, if you have any early impressions of, of seeing him or talking to people around him or talking to him yourself, perhaps, uh, about what he adds that uh, might have been different or balances out or just what makes him unique. I'm just curious about your perspective as a pitcher to pitcher. What, you, what do you see in Michael Walker? You know, I, I see a guy who, you know, a lot of experience, um, you know, across the game. He's, he's been through the high times, the low times, postseason. He seems to be a, a very steely-eyed, grizzled competitor, but yet a great teammate, teammate away from the mound. And so he brings the best of, of, of both worlds. And I think that so far he has absolutely – um, you know, lived up to what the Rays saw. They targeted him early on. They had a good idea that that's the guy they want to bring in, not only because of the type of guy he is, the type of competitor he is, and, you know, looking to, to kind of finish his career on a strong and high note, but he's given them all of that uh, across the board. And, and it has to be, they've got to be thrilled uh, with that signing and, and, and what he's been able to do. But that's that's what I see. I just see a guy who, has a ton of big game experience um, and is willing to do what it takes for the team to succeed. He's going to give you everything he has when he's on the mound, kind of a, you know, just a, a throwback bulldog type guy. And yet he's going to be the best of teammates um, to, to all the young guys looking to establish themselves in this game. And I think that that, that it's that signing has been everything that the Rays so far have hoped it would be. Well, and, and speaking of great teammates, one of the guys that's been out there on social media pumping up all of the young pitchers day in and day out is old friend of the Rays, former ace of the Rays, Chris Archer, back in St. Pete. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to the team? To have a guy like Chris Archer who means so much to this franchise to return back to this franchise He's going to be piggybacking a role. He's changing roles a little bit, but he is, seems fully embraced and excited from at least the outside perspective, from what we've heard with his interviews with Trisha, to be back uh, in a Rays uniform. Yeah, there, I, there's a lot to unpack, you know, with Chris Archer coming back. I think that, um, you know, not pitching a season ago and having that thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, uh, you know, that's when you, you've played the game long enough and you start to have injury issues, which he had, you know, when he went to Pittsburgh and then you have a surgery. And even though it was a shortened season, you still miss the season. Um, you start to see your own mortality in the game. And I think what the Rays are getting and, and what I have seen in the interviews with him uh, is a more mature, a, a guy who um, is relishing every moment that he gets to put the uniform on again. And getting to do that back with, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays where he where he made his mark. I mean, that that's where Chris Archer became a known pitcher was with the Rays. And he's now coming back and getting an opportunity um, to pitch for them once again. Um, and, 
but there's there's a maturity I think in the way that he pitches. He's not that same overpowering with the fastball slider. You know, we're seeing him mix in the changeup. We're seeing him move the ball around the strike zone. He's pitching more than I've ever seen him pitch, um, and seems to be more mature as a human being and much more um, just very appreciative of this opportunity and the moment to get to compete again. And I think that goes a long way. And so, yeah, he's excited. He's an excitable kid. I mean, we've seen that, you know, whether you, you always loved it, that some of the dancing off the mound when he was with the Rays a couple of years ago and, and some of the, the pirouettes that would get thrown around, he's an excitable guy. So that for him to be excited for his teammates and kind of pumping them up, you know, again, it's, it's another one of those signings the Rays have to be very happy with because he's, He's buying into the way they want to do things, and he's being a great teammate. Are you not entertained? Uh, it's also a legacy <laughs> in signing, too, because he's really close to becoming the Rays franchise leader in strikeouts. Well, yeah, and he's going to get that, that opportunity. I mean, that, that was the one thing that you remember about him is that, you know, there was a time that he maybe had the best slider in the game or top three. Uh, he, he, he basically had three sliders. Well, and he had, a, yes, and, and there, he would throw it with the velocity of an average fastball, maybe just slightly, but, but it had the break of a curveball. I mean, it was like, it was the depth that he was able to get on his slider because of his, um, you know, how tall he stayed over the rubber and really driving that ball downhill. It was pretty incredible. Like, like I said, it was the hardest curveball that you, you've ever seen. And, and so, uh, boy, if he gets that opportunity and he's able to do it, that would be, that would be pretty awesome because that's what you remember about him was the, the the swings and misses and a lot of times on that pitch yeah i'm interested to see what his uh his slider looks like now i used to joke with my wife when we had the game on that uh he it was like cooking eggs because it would be over hard over medium or over easy <laughs> yeah 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 no <laughs> that's good yeah and you know what here's the thing his slider was so good that that he would throw the backup slider that would end up being just the the, the cement mixer in the middle of the plate and he'd still get misses because guys are expecting it to, to have that big depth and they're starting to go down and get it. And it didn't move. It didn't move. So if he threw it really good, you had no chance. If he threw it really bad, you didn't really have much of a chance either. Uh, another picture I'm really excited to see. And I'm interested in your perspective on, cause you, you jogged my memory of it talking about your promotion of the majors was sugar Shane getting his call up during the postseason. Can, wow. I mean, we've seen it before with David price. You kind of get your introduction, but he at least got his feet wet first, yeah. I think. Uh, and, McClanahan had to make his debut in the postseason. Can you imagine being in his shoes? No, no. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you'll never forget your big league debut. Hitter, pitcher, doesn't matter. You, you're never going to forget that. Um, and you can remember everything about it. You can remember the nerves. Yeah, I, can, I can remember I came in relief. And again, we were at Sky Dome. And as I'm coming into the game, I felt like I was running like high knees because I was afraid of catching my, my spike on the turf and, you know, and you, know you, you can remember everything that was going on through your mind. And those moments are big enough. Do that in the postseason where uh, it's the postseason. Every pitch matters. That's the one thing I've always tried to, to tell other pitchers, guys that I've played with, or just people in general when you're trying to describe the difference. The postseason is like nothing you've ever, if you've never experienced, it's hard for me to be able to explain it to you. If you're, even if you're a player, because it's, you didn't, you thought that major league baseball was the ultimate major league. It doesn't get any better than that. Yes, it does. 
There's another level to baseball, and it's called the postseason. If you tried to play a, a regular season with the intensity that goes into a postseason, guys would be they would be in padded rooms by late June. It is just it's it's overload. It's absolute overload. And so to make your debut in that kind of environment is it is insane. That was insane. And I think that that I don't know if he truly understands it because he's so young. And a lot of times you don't really realize things until down the road. But it certainly looks like he kind of gets how big of a deal that was because he's come into camp and since coming in and, you know, now no longer with the big league club, but just came in just carving people up and throwing the ball extremely well. Like that confidence of, wait a minute, I made my debut in the postseason and I was able to pitch and, and pitch well. And now I'm coming into spring training and you can see that confidence level has really taking him to another level and you're going to see him help out sooner rather than later. But yeah, that I cannot imagine what he was feeling going out there to take them out for the first time. And Oh, by the way, this is, this is, this is the playoffs. That's the, that's the, that's unbelievable. Speaking of the playoffs, how, how difficult was it personally not to be there on the call for that postseason run and into the world series? Yeah. It, 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 you know, it's, it was not ideal. Let's, let's put it that way. Now, we don't get to call the games, obviously, you know, those are going to go to the national, but you're going to do a pre and post game show, or maybe just a post game show, whatever. Uh, but it's nice to be there on site. I know the previous year, um, you know, I was with the team in Oakland when they, you know, they win the wild card and then went to, with the team to Houston and we're doing, you know, some hits from the field there, but just being around that buzz uh, was, was phenomenal. Now, this past year, you know, I decided to say, you know, I'm going to stay in the studio and, and Doug got to go to site. And I'm, so I'm sure that that was, you know, at least a world series. And I'm sure that that was exciting, but it's still, it's, it's not the home ballpark of the team you're playing. It's, you know, you're in Arlington, it's not full of fans. So it, it, it wasn't the same. I mean, you know, it, it, yeah, it just, it was not the same. It's nice to be around the atmosphere of, of a, you know, a, a playoff, a playoff atmosphere and to not be a part of that, it kind of stunk. But I will say this, you, I think you have to, at the end of the day, you got to tip your hat to the guys. Cause I thought that for the, the fans, for the most part, not being there all season long, cardboard cutouts and piped in crowd noise. And the, the level of play was still really good. I mean, these guys at the end of the day focused in on we're playing a game um, and this game means something. They were very professional about how they went about their business and, and I don't think there was a dip in the quality of play, even though there was no atmosphere. So you got you to gotta credit the guys for that. Okay, so the Yankees are still the Yankees, right? You've got some other teams in the American League that look pretty formidable. A lot of people believe in the White Sox right now. The Rays would love to run it back, but it's also this semi-transition year where they're waiting for this massive wave of prospects to come in. What do you think is going to what, – what does this team look like in September, and are they contending for the playoffs? Yes, without without a doubt, I don't even hesitate there. Um, you know, I went on record last year because, again, it was a Yankees Dodgers World Series that was already written in stone. And I said, people, to anybody that would listen, listen to me. The Yankees probably aren't even going to win the division. They, they, they probably aren't even going to win the ALE. So forget about the World Series. They may not win the division. And lo and behold, you know, because and the reason that I even said that you go to the series, the, the previous season. 
the Rays got blitzed by the Yankees early in that year, and the Yankees were averaging two home runs a game. They hit 10 home runs through the first five games, and they kind of had the Rays number. Well, all of a sudden, the Rays started figuring out how to pitch to that lineup. They kept them in the yard, and they kept them off the scoreboard. And if you'll remember, the last week of the season, Yankees come in to play the Rays, two-game series. Um, Yankees are playing all their big boys because they're going for home field advantage throughout, uh, and the Rays are fighting for their lives to get into the wild card. And it was a two-game series. First game went 12 innings. Game two went nine. 21 innings of ball against that Yankee lineup. Yankees scored one run. One run. And that was the Rays understanding this lineup. A lot of big names, a lot of scary names they can be pitched to. And so that's why I was confident going into last year. And I feel the same way this year. Now, I'm not as... I'm not going to go out on a limb again. I don't feel as confident the Rays will win the division. They could, absolutely could. They're going to have to have a lot of guys emerge, and they're going to have to have veterans put together really good years. But there's no question that when you get into September, it's going to be right here. It's going to be back and forth all year long. I know Toronto is another sexy splash team. Certainly they've improved. Um, I think the Rays will find a way to to fend them off because they'll just outpitch them. And, uh, you know, Boston, you know, their pitching staff, I don't think that's going to be able to keep up as far as the division. Baltimore, Baltimore is one of those keys to the division in the sense that when you play Baltimore, you, you, I think the Rays went six and four against them last year, seven and three against Boston, eight and two against the Yankees. You can't have your worst record against against the Orioles. That's a team. When you play the Orioles, you beat their brains. Then. That's it. You, you end them. And so that's how you're going to make a move in a division. When you play a team like that 19 times, go handle your business. Don't play down to their level, handle your business. And at the end of the day, you're going to get into September and it's going to be a race to the finish. And I absolutely believe that the Rays, as constituted right now, are a playoff team at minimum. Brian, I know we always talk about like how deep the Rays are and there's so many different names, but do you think there is, there's a face of the franchise right now, the way the roster is currently constructed? Face of the franchise. There's a hair of the franchise. Do you have serious hair envy for uh, Glass now and that flow? <laughs> Listen, yes, yes. And that may be the guy that you go with. I mean, could you go with the Rosarena as the face of the franchise? I, I mean, I don't know. He's certainly the one guy that everybody around the country knows. I mean, when I went back home in the offseason, everybody up in Cleveland was like, who's this a Rosarena kid? I'm like, yeah, listen, he, you know, when they made that trade, you're thinking, okay, you know, Carlos Martinez, that, that's going to be a guy that, you know, a, an established hitter, but it was a Rosarena that was kind of the principal of that deal. And he showed you why uh, when he got his opportunity. So I would say, I, I would think that you'd probably have to go glass now because he's the most out there guy. He's your mm-hmm. opening day starter. He's charismatic. He does the podcast thing. Um, when, when you get a chance to interview him, he, he's a good interview. He's got a lot to say. He's thoughtful. He's the team player rep. I mean, is it him? I mean, is it Kiermaier? Willie Adamas is my answer. Yeah, well, then, see, that's the thing is the Rays don't have that guy that has to stand up and say, hey, look at me. Look, look, everybody look this way. You got a bunch of dudes around the country. They never get any national respect because they don't have a lot of household names, but they got really good players. Look at the outfield. The outfield, if everybody's healthy, you're going to have a Rosarena, Kiermaier, Margot, Meadows. Okay, well, you can't play four. So someone's going to have to D. I mean, they've got really good players that don't bring a lot of attention to themselves for the most part. I mean, every now and then you're going to get a guy that 
you know, gets a little bit of the spotlight and doesn't mind, uh, you know, being a ham or whatever. That, then that's good. You sh- they should show your personalities. But they don't have a lot of meet me eye eye guys. They just don't have them. So it's hard to say. But I would I would probably go that route. I'd probably say last night, like you said, the flow opening day player rep. He's out there. He's doing the pot. You know, he's whatever. He's yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't. I mean, that that would be that would be my guy. I don't know. There's there's a lot of really good good choices, but oh, he's know. handsome. I mean, that- <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you make a good point there. If, if, you know, it gets into the hot months of summer and this goes bye-bye, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, you know, maybe he's like Samson Maybe he loses the hair. Maybe he's not the face anymore. Are you concerned that people are going to confuse you, Adam Barry and Mike Brasso, if you guys are in the same room? No, not even a little bit. <laughs> I, I, hey, I'll tell you what, though. That's another one. I, I, Mike Brasso is one of my favorite rakes. I mean, I got a bunch yeah. of them. You line them up. But you got to love that guy. You know, his story coming out of Oakland University. I remember when I was a freshman at Wright State, we went up and played Oakland on their field. Whoa. I mean, this is not exactly. I mean, it was like a back pasture. Um, and our field wasn't much better. Um, but knowing that university and having played against him and knowing that's where he came from, uh, his story's unbelievable. You know, just, just hits wherever he goes and almost get, gets brought into the Rays organization as a, you know, we need a guy to play an A ball. You can fill out the roster, you know, and, 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 you know, you play a spot and he just hammers his way right to the big leagues and becomes a, a big part of the rotation. I love that kid. And he had, and he had one of the big, there was a lot of big moments last year, but he had maybe one of the biggest moments, maybe one of the all time raised moments. The best. That was the best. After he almost got decapitated, not too, you know, previous to that was almost decapitated by a hundo from Chapman. And then in a meaningful game, he just goes yard ball. That was one of the best moments that I've seen in the game. I mean, just having been around it for a long time, especially the the, the, the love I have for that kid, um, the big bad Yankees, Chapman, playoffs, and you talk about getting the guy back and just dropping the mic. You can't do it, well, dropping the Brasso. You can't do it much better uh, than, than he did. That was the best. Can you power rank? So we, we had important raise moments from this postseason. There's three big ones. There's the Brasso home run. There's winning the pennant, and mm-hmm. then there's uh, the airplane mode where Brett Phillips <laughs> did his thing and, and went flying through the outfield. Can you power rank those three against top raise moments or uh, top moments at least you've been a, a part of the organization? You know, I, I think that you go back um, the game where the Rays clinched pennant or not pennant, but uh, clinched a playoff berth. You know, first time ever. I think at Longoria caught the pop up to kind of clinch that game. I think it was against the Twins. Twins. Trevor Miller was pitching. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that that was a big moment. Um, obviously, beating the uh, uh, you, know, you know the Red Sox to get to the World Series, the ground ball to second base with Price on the mound in a tight game, Game Seven. Um, that was a that was a huge moment. Um, but. Power ranking this, if I just did this past postseason, I would go with the Brasso homer just because of everything that went into it. Mm-hmm. 
And it's also how we got this stable. It's where all of that narrative came from. Which was fantastic. I, I loved Cash doing that. Just, you know what? You, you guys want to play games? I, I got a bunch. I got a bunch. And when I bring the one in and it gets kicked out of the game, that's okay because there's another coming in right after that. So if you want to keep it up, we can play that game all day. I love that. Um, but then um, I would probably then go with the pennant number two. And the only reason that I would take Brett Phillips and the, the, the airplane ride through the outfield number three, even though that's, that's game four of the World Series and that tied things up, is that whole series of events wasn't it was the Rays getting it done with a lot of help from the Dodgers. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, if, 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 if the ball is just fielded cleanly and gotten in, it, we're probably not doing this. If, if they don't zoo the play at home plate and throw it by the catcher, yeah. that, all of that probably doesn't happen. Resurrect um, a somersault. It happens yeah. in a different way. Yeah. So there was a lot of uh, assistance, if you will by the Dodgers for that moment, even though it turned out to be a great moment. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it thrilled a, a nation because it got the game back two to two and there was a lot going on there, but there was a lot of help there from the Dodgers. So it wasn't all race. When it comes to like a calling, you know, being there to call big games and those iconic things, there's some great moments there, but for that Brett Phillips one, are you almost kind of glad that you and Dwayne weren't on the mic because of how money, chaotic because there was such great like super clips of everybody's calls from radio to broadcast just trying to process eight different things happening at once where there's errors and balls bouncing off of people and randy's falling down and, <laughs> and just chaos. Yeah. no listen i would have loved to have been there um because you would have never heard from me that's Dwayne's <laughs> call Dwayne's the one that's gonna have to piece that baby together and I would have loved to have a front row seat uh, for him trying to, 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 you know, to cover all that and, and to get it done. Because at the end of the day, when it's my turn to talk, because you call the play, the game is won, and then you let the celebration, the, you, the, the airplay, you let all of that go and you don't say a word. When you do finally wrap things up and you break the play down, now that's when I get involved. And at that point, TVs are off. People are in other rooms. <laughs> no one cares about anything I have to say at that point. So yes, I would have loved to have been there to see Dwayne put that play together. I would have loved to have to have just sat back and see how he was going to do it. We need it. We need to put together a super clip of him just calling big plays. <laughs> Is there a Patreon I can subscribe to where I get the two of you on the call during the postseason? I would have loved that. Uh, there's Listen, probably. Well, there, there, yeah, there are rules against that, and I will, and I will tell you this: there are also rules against um, having live feeds from the booth because if you had that, you you, you want to make a show, you want to make a show, is just run a live feed of what goes on in the booth in between innings. It is, it is good stuff, really good stuff. Of course, if they had that, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. But you, you get my point. <laughs> If there's one way that the pandemic has changed my life working from home, it's that I wear sweatpants every day. Are you going to bring that to the booth? I'm you you know going to go I, jeans. I'm going to go jeans. There were, there were a couple of games last year, Sunday uh, day games with the team on the road that I was this close to cargo shorts, this <laughs> close to rolling up. But I'm like, I, I don't, the only reason that I didn't at the end of the day was because I had a long walk from where I parked to the stadium. 
I didn't want to make that walk look with people driving about it just look i mean you know if i could have just brought him in and changed i would have done it and and yes i'll probably do something at some point this year because we'll be in the studio and it's not even at the stadium you know so Mm -hmm. you can kind of come in with whatever so yes i i will there will be a good story about some attire for this year but yeah that seems to be a popular move is for everybody to really dumb down from the waist down and uh and and they're more comfortable and they work more efficiently before we go i i would really appreciate your perspective on one more pitcher and uh, i you're, you're definitely qualified to comment on the hitters but i definitely appreciate all of your your calls and your analysis on the pitchers but just relating to nick anderson's experience right now where he is lights out he's the best reliever in baseball he gets on baseball's biggest stage it starts to get away from him Afterwards, uh, he gives some commentary like, yeah, I was pitching hurt. He takes this offseason. He comes back into camp and the elbow's not cooperating. And now he's on the 60-day IL with a partial ligament tear. You have already detailed on this podcast consecutive years of dealing with your elbow blowing out and not being able to compete and maybe having the game slip away from you. Can you relate to what he's feeling? And what do you think the rest of the year looks like for Nick Anderson? You know, I, I feel for him in the sense that, you know, his is a little different than mine. When I realized mine was torn, it was surgery was the only option. And now with the partial tear, you've got the, the, the PRP um, injections, you've got uh, the stem cell route they can go down, you know, some different ways to try to treat it before they go in and operate because always, always, um, operating is the last option. If there's anything you can try before that, you know, you want to go that route and leave that as the, as the final option on the table. That being said, you also don't want to give away two years instead of one. So you're going to take a couple of months and you're going to go through that PRP stem cell, whatever they do, the rest, I, 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 you know, I don't, whatever. And then you're going to attempt, you know, the, the comeback to start throwing. If it doesn't go well at that point, you've not only cost yourself this year, but but next year too. And so for a guy who has finally established himself in the game as a dominant back end of the bullpen reliever, you just feel for him with the decision that he's forced to make. If I elect to get aggressive and go with surgery now, I, I lose this year, but th- but I lose one year. I can do this waiting game, resting game, and see if we can bounce back. But now I run the risk of it being a two-year deal. And so that's where you feel for it. Injuries are part of the game and you have to deal with them. But he's dealing with a big-time decision that if it goes well, great. Um, but then you're still wondering, is it still partially torn and can it go at any time? But, but if he goes in and, you know, it, it, that's just, it's a tough spot to be in. And you really, really, you feel for him. And you just hope if he is going to do the game where, you know, he's going to do the, all of the other um, treatments and then try to come back, you just pray that it works out well for him. And he's able to pick up the second half of the season and just continue on with his career because you'd hate to see him come back. And then all of a sudden here, July or August, that he has to go under the knife. And now you're like, you kidding me? I mean, this poor guy, uh, you know, n- now by the time he comes back, he's two years removed from the game and you don't even want to go down that road and think about it. So that's where it stinks. Uh, and, you, and, and again, 
your heart breaks for them because that's a tough decision, man. That is a tough decision to have to make. On this subject of, of you know, just guys that you're really rooting for and hoping health kind of bounces back. I got to, I got to ask, you know, what was the best moment of spring training and why was it Brent Honeywell pitching that one inning? Yeah. Well, and we got to be there for that, which was, which was just fantastic. Um, geez. I mean, this guy, when he came up, you know, he, he could, he could talk a game like you couldn't believe I'm going to be in the big leagues like yesterday. Um, and when I do get there, I'm putting the rest of the league on alert because I'm going to tear you up. I mean, you just love his confidence and his bravado, um, you know, good old country boy. And he just <laughs> he was just a character, you know, and it's one thing to have an injury and you miss a year or two of development. This poor kid, 2000, you know, what is it? 17, it started with the mm-hmm. you know first outing of live BP elbow goes. Oh, that stinks. Well, you know what? Get it taken care of now. Come back. Well, then we're going to we're going to break an elbow. We're, we're going to fracture an elbow and then we're going to have decompression and then we're going to have scar tissue. We're going to miss three seasons. It I, makes me I, so I, uncomfortable know, hearing you talk through it. <laughs> listen, I, my elbow started to. Yeah, it started to pulse, too. It still has feelings for all that nonsense. But but with what he went through and just the dogged pursuit, because I'm telling you right now, having rehab two Tommy John's. The rehab process is the worst. It's tedious. It's behind the scenes. There's very little positive feedback. Like you, you're talking about not even, you know, you know, run before you or walk before you run. You're learning how to, to take a little step. You know, your, your, your day is, is they're going to move it like this 25 times. Then that's your day. And that's considered progress. I mean, it's a tedious process. For him to go through three or four different rehabs over a three-year span, be this close to the big leagues, and 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 never have gotten a chance to taste it, and then have to go through these, it, I can't imagine what his journey was like and how difficult it was. And then when you feel like you're starting to come out of it, there's another issue. There's the fractured elbow, and then and then something doesn't feel right again, and then something doesn't feel right again. You're like, am I ever going to see the light at the end of the tunnel? And we finally got to see it and he got to experience it. And it was great to be um, a part of that. And you just hope that that is step one, you know, on his journey to a, a productive uh, big league career. But it was it was great to be there for understanding. I shouldn't say understanding because I don't understand. Seeing what he went through, having been through what he has been through a couple of different times, you know, I had the Tommy John 05 and 06 and had two years of rehab, not three. I, I, you know, I I took the third year off and then tried to come back with the Rays. But by the time I came back with the Rays in 08, my last game I had thrown was in May of 05. Okay, that's a three years. It was an eternity. That was an eternity. And that's what he just experienced but yet mine blew up again and his is still humming right along. So good for him. And I was very happy that I got to, to, to be there and call that. Ryan, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. And I'm just so grateful to have you back on the call this year. So we're excited. Oh yeah. Hey, listen guys, I, I appreciate you having me on. This was a, an absolute blast. Love reading um, all the different articles and all of the different angles that everybody takes. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a blast to get up and see what D-Rays Bay has to say. And by the way, 
a lot of the stuff ends up helping me out quite a bit because there are some <laughs> things in there that maybe I haven't thought about that I'm like, that's, that's pretty, or, or some inside info that I wasn't privy to, um, you know, with, especially with the analytics and, and all of that. So yeah, that, that's, that's a blast. And so I appreciate you guys having me on. It was a lot of fun, man, for sure. Just want to say thank you to our guest, Brian Anderson today. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you haven't checked out our conversations with Eric Neander, Adam Barry, and Neil Solons, I highly recommend checking them out, guys. They are a great preview to the 2021 season as a whole. Now, if you're looking for a series preview for the Rays and Marlins series this opening weekend, Raise Your Voice should be dropping very soon. And honestly, by the time you're listening to this, it's probably out already. So I highly recommend checking that out as well. I talked to Alex Krutchik from fishstripes.com and Jamal Wilberg from draysbay.com. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the D-Rays Bay podcast special. As always, make sure to head on over to DRaysBay.com to check out all of the great Rays coverage that is really ramping up as we head into the 2021 season. And if your platform allows it, rating and reviewing our podcast network is the best way to spread what we do to more and more Rays fans. I'll talk to you guys very soon on the next episode of Raise Your Voice.